Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, how about now? We're going to start a new series tonight on the life of David. And uh, I wonder, as we get into this, I wonder um, who you think, uh, and I've already kind of given you a hint here, but I wonder who you think might be mentioned most in the Old Testament. Okay, let's just put out some names there. Abraham, okay, Abraham, David, and... Let's go with um, Moses, okay? Okay. How many, think, how many times do you think it mentions Moses in the Old Testament? And this is Price is Right, so you get a bid high as without going over. A hundred? Okay. Anybody else? What is it? Five zero? Okay. 101. You've just been outbid, Jeremy. Anybody want to go higher than that? <laughs> no? Down? Abraham? Go down a little bit. Right now, 101 is the highest bid without going over. What is it? At least 75? Okay, well, we're up up to 101. I'm just going to tell you how many times. How many times do you think uh, Abraham is in the Old Testament mentioned? 175. 175 times. Okay. All right. Um, what's that? Yeah. Can you believe that? How about Moses? How many times do you think Moses is mentioned in the Old Testament? 300. Okay. 300. What is it? 150. No, nope, more than that. 500, more than that? 600, more than that? (laughs) 700? 772. Okay, so Abraham, 175. Moses, 772. David, how many times do you think he's mentioned? 950? Okay. 1,000? Okay, 1,082. If you mention all the times that Abraham's mentioned in the Old Testament and Moses are mentioned in the Old Testament and put them together, it's still less than the amount of times David is mentioned. Isn't that interesting? I don't know that we can necessarily draw significance from that 100%. I had a slideshow for us tonight, but I can't get it to pull up for some reason. So we're going to do this another way. So we're going we're gonna to look at the life of David. And, and tonight, just to get into the discussion about who David is, um, we need to look at the backdrop, and I think if we're going to understand uh, what uh, a person is doing in the world, uh, we need to look at it in relationship to God's plan, His purposes. Would you agree? Okay, so if we want to know whether somebody's significant or insignificant, whether they're uh, right or wrong, we need to look at it with the background that this is God's story, this is His purposes being played out. And so even as we approach our lives, one of the questions I think we need to ask is, where do we fit into God's purposes in the world? It's not about what do we, what do we look like in relationship to uh, the American vision of what is the good life. That's not really the right question. The right question is, how do we fit our lives with God's purpose? Okay, and so that makes all the difference in the world. It makes a difference with uh, what uh, what we use as a standard to define success is success the world success. I mean, if the whole world says to you, "Well done," and Jesus doesn't say, "Well done," he says, "Depart from me, I never knew you." Uh, he made a comment about that, didn't he? He said, "What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world?" And we could put in there just to be specific, "What would it profit to gain the whole world's praise and lose your soul?" Right. I mean, that's one aspect of gaining the world, isn't it? Some people sell their souls for uh, notoriety of one kind or another. And so we, we, um, we need to judge what success is based upon 
what the, what the backdrop of what God is doing in the world is. So in order to do that tonight, we're going to look at what God was doing in the world and what purposes were being played out that led to the reign of King David. Okay, So I'm excited about this. I'm excited about David's one of my favorite characters. I think there's some great life lessons that we can gain from David, some do's and some don'ts, right? Uh, we, we can understand how to deal with adversity. With uh, looking at David, we can see what it's like to have a life of faith. We know what it means to be a wise leader and somebody who is used by God in a tremendous way. And we know what it looks like to fall hard when we look at David. And so we're going to look at the life of David. And I thought for this first, uh, this first lesson, we would, call, we would call this, and um, this, is, this is our title for the every week, uh, as soon as we get done teaching or preaching, uh, the sound booth is after me to have a title. And I always, after having expended all my mental energy and preaching and teaching, uh, come up with the lamest titles. So we're doing this up front. And it is a son of legacy, that David is a son of legacy, okay? He, he's a son of legacy. What do we mean by legacy? It's good to define our terms. And the thing that I want to d- use to define legacy, it's something handed down or received from an ancestor or a predecessor, okay? What's the difference between an ancestor or a predecessor? Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's really that's a really good um, distinction between those two. And so as we're we're thinking about this, David, uh, we're thinking in terms of uh, his ancestry, something that was handed down. And so legacy here has to do with the promises of God. And so I want to start with the promise of a son. If you want to um, take notes tonight, I've got three points, and the first one is the promise of a son. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. We'll start there. Uh, so if you want to go there, Genesis three fourteen through 15. And I'll give you a moment. What's the, what's the context of Genesis 3 from your memory? The fall, right? Genesis 1 and 2 are really good. Genesis 3, it all goes wrong. And uh, <laughs> Eve eats the fruit, gives it to Adam, who apparently is right there when it's all going down. And uh, they of course, then go hide, and God comes in the cool of the day to fellowship, and uh, they're hiding, and he calls them out. And one thing to note, uh, and you come across, anytime God asks a question in the Bible, he's never asking for information. You know that? He always knows the answer. He's always asking in order to get, to draw something out of us. And so he, where are you, and, and who told you you were naked, and and what have you done, and things like that. It's not about God getting information because he's the all-seeing eye, right? He knows what's happening. And so looking at Genesis 3, he's starting to to dish out the punishments for the sin. I don't think this isn't really relevant to this, but I don't personally think whatever fruit they ate was bad fruit. I think I think God picked a tree and said, that's the test right there. That's the escape hatch. There needs to be freedom. It's even... It's not even something that's innately sinful, okay? He just says, don't eat from that tree. And so they're not to eat from that tree because that will bring about the knowledge of good and evil. That's my, my understanding of that. So he's dishing out these sentences or these punishments, and he comes uh, first to the serpent. And, and the Lord said to the serpent in verse 14 and 15, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is known uh, as something by the uh, theologians. I'm going to write it up here. I'm going to run out of space. That's an N on the end, okay? Plan ahead, right? All right. Anybody know what this is? Proto-Evangelion. Okay. So what does anybody know what Evangelion is? Okay. We get evangelized from it. This uh, word right here means first. Yep. 
first gospel, and gospel is a shorthand word for something else, isn't it? What? Good news. Okay. This is the first good news since the fall. And I think that's kind of beautiful, isn't it? Because God is giving good news, even though it sounds really bad. Hasn't gotten into all the repercussions that will take place yet, but he's already given us something that is a hint about what he's going to do later on. Okay, in Genesis 3.15, this is the, the first preaching of the gospel. So at this moment, um, the preaching of the gospel is very ill-defined. It's not, it's not laid out nice and neat like the Romans road that we know, but it's a poetic hint at what's taking place. What do they know? They know that the serpent has come and deceived them, and they willingly they use their will because we can't blame it all on the devil. Okay, we have to take our responsibility. So he deceived them, they bought into it, and they ate the fruit, and sin came into the world. Okay, so what they know is that there's a deceiver, there's a sin, there's an evil that needs to be dealt with. And how is it going to be dealt with? I'd like you to notice some things in this, uh, in this sentence here. It says, I will put, God says, God's the I right there, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, who is the, who's the woman here? It's Eve, right? And her offspring, some future offspring that's coming. Uh, and so what is enmity? What's enmity? Tension, what is it? Uh, it's it's uh, enmity. It's to make an enemy out of somebody. Maybe a good modern word would be hostility. Okay, are you are you following that? That there's hostility now between. It's not just. This isn't the reason why we don't like snakes. Okay, this is more than that. There's hostility now that's put there between. If we're, if we're to read the symbols right, between us and the ser- and the serpent. Who's the serpent representing for us here? The devil, right? Okay, so there's hostility there. I'd like you to notice we're going to jump to the third thing, but it's only so that we can uh, say it in a more dramatic fashion here. But the third thing is, is that he will, uh, you will, the serpent, will strike his heel. Okay, who's the his there? The, The descendant, right? The offspring, okay? That's the his. So whatever is happening here, it's going to wound, the serpent is going to wound this offspring, this son. Are you with me? Okay. But ultimately, and this we're jumping now to the middle thing, which is that, but he will crush your head. Okay. Who's the, who's the he and who's the your there? The future descendant, right? We're not going to define our terms exactly just yet because as far as Eve knows, she doesn't doesn't know the name of Jesus, but she just knows some future offspring is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, okay, right? And what does crushing the head of a snake usually do to it? Kills it, right? Like this is the death blow. And so there's some poetic language on all of this, but but what God is, is doing is he's infusing hope into that situation that through your offspring will be your salvation, okay? Through your offspring will be the defeat of this enemy. And so he's, he's preaching the gospel ahead of time to Adam and Eve. It's not the, it's not the full-blown Romans road. We wouldn't, we wouldn't probably be able to go out on the street with this and go, hey, look, here's the, here's the full good news and people just running to Jesus, they need, to, they need to know some more details than that. But this is, this is like the breaking in of hope, all right? That, yes, you have a death sentence, but I'm going to send someone, and he's going to come through you. Are, are you getting the echoes here? And he's going to take care of the problem, okay? So this is the preaching of the gospel. So it's enough for them to have hope as they look forward, now, this whole thing of offspring starts to take off and get really big. You're going to see it in several passages. I did have a slide for this, but I'm going to mention these verses, and if you want to write them down, you can. Genesis 9.9, um, Noah gets off the ark, right? 
and he's offering sacrifices, and then God says to him something that he seems to say to the patriarchs, and anytime there needs to be a population explosion, he says these, these words. What? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Okay? So he's saying that, and then immediately on the heels of that, then he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and with your offspring after you. So there's, there's a, a narrowing, of course, through the judgment that's taken place. So all of the world has been wiped out because of their increased sinfulness and their, their inclination to sin all the time. And so God narrows, and with Noah, he starts again, and he says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And so he makes a covenant with Noah and with his offspring after him. So we're starting to see this happen. Maybe you remember something that happened a little bit later on. Uh, Noah ate of the fruit of the vine and drank some of the wine and got a little tipsy. Remember that? Went to bed and uh, his sons saw that he was naked there and they went to cover him up. And one of them looked and it wasn't the right thing to do and a curse fell upon him. Remember? And one son emerged as the son of promise. Do you remember who it was? Shem, Shem. And God says in one place, I will dwell in the tents of Shem. Do you know what we call the Jewish people? We call them Shemites or Semites. They're descendants from Shem. It's the, it's the line of promise. And so we're starting to see this narrow again. It's not all of Noah's sons, but it's a particular, it's a particular lineage, a line that's taking place. And through the line of uh, Shem, uh, the line of Seth, of course, leads to Noah. The line of Shem uh, leads to Abraham, ultimately. And then we see Abraham receiving a word about offspring. And uh, some some translations will have in the place of offspring, seed. Okay, uh, The thing about offspring, the thing about seed is it's a collective singular. And so uh, anybody know what that means when you have a collective singular? If I told you there's moose, would you say there's one or many? The same word, isn't it? Like, there's moose. There's a moose, one. There's moose, many. It's collective singular. Deer is the same way. Seed is the same way. Can't think of a other one, but I know there's lots of them. And this is one of those words that I believe, if, if I am understood this right, in Hebrew, in Greek, and in English, it's collective singular. And so it can mean many or it can mean the one. And Paul, when he quotes some of these passages in Galatians, narrows that down and says, when he says of seeds, he's not talking about the many, he's talking about the one, the seed, Jesus, that he's the offspring through whom all the nations will be blessed. So this offspring thing is very important, and uh, I know we're talking about David, but we've got to get there. Abraham, uh, he says in Genesis twenty two eighteen, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, And then you start to see this ripple forward, because the very next generation, who's after Who's after Abraham in the line of promise? Isaac, right? God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And he singles Isaac out in Genesis 26, verse 24. And he says to Isaac, through your seed or your, your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then who's next in the line? Jacob. And he says to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 14, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Sometimes we overlook that blessing and, and we think, um, well, that just means God's going to give them an abundance. This has a relational tone to it. This is to stand in God's favor. Through this offspring, the peoples of the earth will stand under the favor of God. That's you and me. We're the fulfillment of the, this promise. And so it's a big concern throughout Scripture about offspring. There's continued narrowing as it goes on down. And so this is what is known as the seed promise or offspring promise of God. Um, we've got 2.68 gigabytes of trash on the computer in case you're interested. We've got to get rid of. That's probably why I can't open that program. Pray for it, will you, when you think of it in your prayer time. This is, I'm kidding, right? Uh, this is what's known as the seed promise or the offspring promise of God, and it's the perpetuation 
of the promise that's given to Eve of hope in an offspring. Okay, so you can see this uh, trickling down through Scripture. The promise to Eve is the hope of an offspring. The promise to Noah is the hope of offspring. The promise to Abraham is the hope through an offspring uh, for the whole world. The promise to Isaac and Jacob, same thing, hope through offspring. And so it's a very primitive faith, at least early on, to believe in this promise. But it's, the, it's, it's a faith to trust in God's promise to deal with evil. And so I think this... This goes further than what we may realize, that sometimes we don't know all the details, and trusting God is sufficient to carry us through. Um, so I, I just wanted to point out again, there's a cost to humanity in this, the wounding of the sun, and the cost to the evil one, the mortal wound from the sun. And so this is pointing forward to the sun, which the Bible uh, will unpack more and more as time goes on. There are new details given in this narrowing of the heritage uh, to a man, a certain son, a tribe, a family, through a certain king, and it looks all along uh, that the promise could fail, but it doesn't fail. And now, David's not that son. Okay, we're we're talking about David tonight, and I just I want to spoil it a little bit and let you know David's not the son we're talking about. Right, we're talking about the son of David, but before it can get to the son of David, it needs to go through David. And so we're, we're working up. This is where the promise is going. David's not the son, but the promise runs through David, and it's significant that it does for reasons that we're going to explore another time. But I want to point out that it's God's purpose which led to a man like David. And that's more than saying that um, you're here because God made you. It's more than that. That David was the particular man that God used is more than just saying that God sovereignly uh, gave him life. There was a placing of a certain kind of man for that position. Uh, As much as we would think of Esther, who was placed into the kingdom for such a time that she had come into the world. And so for David, the same thing is true. Um, We also owe to, uh, to God, not just our existence, but the privilege of serving in his plan wherever he chooses to use us. So there's the promise of a son, and that's going to come through, and it's going to rest momentarily upon David. Later on, when they preach about um, Christ in the book of Acts, one of the things they bring up is David's promise or his psalm where he says, you'll not allow your Holy One to see corruption in the grave. We talked about it on Sunday, remember? And uh, I think it's Peter preaching that sermon. Maybe that at that point is Stephen. I don't recollect at the moment. But I do know that he says, uh, David, it can't be David. This is what the preacher is saying. It can't be David because David served God's purposes in his generation. And then he rested with his fathers. And he decayed in the grave. That's, that's what he's saying. But not Jesus. So there's a distinction that's to be made. But I want to point out the fact that the the... Um, the thoroughfare, the road, the scarlet ribbon that goes through Scripture uh, goes through David. Okay, so that's important. He's the he's the uh, messianic forefather of Jesus, and what David did in material fashion, and perhaps some in the spiritual fashion of building the temple, but uh, Jesus is going to has done and will do in a much bigger way. All right, so then I want to point us to this interesting fact, and this is the second point, is that the promise, the promise is through some unlikely participants. Will you go with me on a journey through now some of the mothers that led up to David? Okay, this is, these are some unlikely participants. If you haven't seen this before, uh, there are some really interesting stories that lead to to the, the David that we know and beyond him. And there's three women that are mentioned in the geo- genealogy of David that's, that are scandalous. Did you know that? If you didn't know that, brace yourself, because this is interesting. Okay, and the first one is a lady known as Tamar. Okay, remember Tamar? The Old Testament, way back, Genesis, in the book of Genesis, we, we meet Tamar. And what we found out is that Judah... Um, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. And 
And which one is Judah in terms of number? He's the, he's the fourth son, right? Reuben, uh, Simon, and Levi, Judah. Okay? So you've got Judah. And maybe you know a little bit about this, but Reuben uh, sleeps with one of his father's concubines. I mean, this is a dysfunctional family, folks. He sleeps with one of his father's concubines. Simeon and Levi are caught up in a deal at Shechem where they trick a bunch of guys into getting circumcised, and then they slay the village. And so the blessing, (laughs) even though Judah's not a virtuous man, the blessing falls like Jacob's like, not you for that, not you two for that. All right, Judah, (laughs) you're the next best option. So it falls to him, and when the blessing comes, it it comes to Judah. We'll talk talk more about that in just a moment. Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And uh, the story of Joseph up to this point in Scripture is interrupted in order to tell us something significant about Judah and Tamar. So if you know anything about this story, you know that the first son of Judah married Tamar, Ur married Tamar, and then he died. He died without leaving any descendants. And so um, the custom, it's not yet law because we don't have that revealed to us yet, not until Sinai, and that hasn't happened yet. But the custom of the day is that you should go into uh, your brother's widow, if she has no children, and raise up a son, Okay. This is the kind of a kinsman redeemer kind of thing that's taking place there. And so Onan is the next in line, and he goes in, and just if you don't know the story, the PG-13 version is that he doesn't produce the son that is hoped for, okay? And there's, there's even a word for that, and it has to do with Onanism. That's it. So um, he doesn't produce in the way that he's supposed to, and he does it kind of defiantly, like, I'm not raising up a son to my brother. And so God strikes him dead. And you'll remember that Tamar's like, now what? And Judah's saying to her, my son, Shelah, he's not old enough for this. So when he gets old enough, you go home, live with your parents, stay at their house. When he's old enough, then we can try again. <laughs> well, time passes, and we find out that... Uh, it's that Judah has no intention of fulfilling on that promise. And so his wife passes away, and he goes to the village, near the village where his former daughter-in-law is. And he's lonely, and he's looking for a good time. And he thinks that this lady is a prostitute, it turns out to be Tamar. But he doesn't know because she's got a face covering on. I'm telling you, this is in the Bible. And so he sleeps with her. She conceives. He says, well, for doing this, I'm going to give you a goat, but I don't have it with me. So she says, well, what can you give me as a promissory note? So she, he gives staff and some other trinkets to hang on to. And he goes back home and kind of forgets about it. And then he hears news that his daughter-in-law has slept with somebody else. And in his mind, he's, she's been unfaithful. And so she's like, we need to burn her to death. And so they bring her out to get ready to burn her, and she says, the man that the, that's the father of this baby, these are his things, <laughs> produces the staff of Judah. Oh, no. And Judah realizes, and he says, she's more righteous than I am. She gives birth. One uh, child uh, sticks its arm out first. That's kind of graphic to think about, but and they tie a little red ribbon around it. But then the other son is born ahead of him. His name's Perez. And he becomes next in line of the Messianic lineage. Okay, and all of that happened in a way, I'm sure, that there could have been a more pleasing to God way for all of that to come about. But God used even that scandalous situation to raise up and fulfill his promise. Okay, so that's one. Second one is, a lady that we know of from Jericho. What's her name? Rahab. Rahab, who was a prostitute. She's mentioned as a prostitute in Joshua. She's mentioned as a prostitute in James. She's mentioned as a prostitute in Hebrews. I mean, when are they going to quit recognizing her by that? Let's just call her a woman of faith by this point, right? So she hides the spies and when it's time for the destruction. In fact, one of the cool things is, is that 
when the Israelites come, she's telling them that we've been hearing about you, and we believe that God's going to give you success. And so you remember me and my family, and they make a promise and a pact with her. If she does these things, they'll remember her, and she's spared. And then the last thing that Joshua tells us in chapter 6 is that she lived with the Israelites. She lived with them. And it doesn't say anymore, but we, we have to assume that uh, she got married and had children. But she's not mentioned again. Uh, and we don't know who she married. And we don't know what children she had until we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And do you know who her son was? Boaz. Boaz. Okay, so that's scandalous. She was a prostitute formerly. She could have been seen by some as a traitor to her nation. She was faithful to God, and she became the mother of Boaz. Boaz, who we get to in just a moment. There's another lady in the genealogy of Jesus and of David uh, whose name was Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabite. Um, the, there's a family from Bethlehem that moved to Moab because of a famine, Elimelech. And if you need to remember that name, uh, I think a good way to remember it is in the jungle, the mighty jungle. You remember how it does a wima way? You can do Elimelech, Elimelech, and remember that if you need to. <laughs> anyway, that's not so important. The next thing that you see is that Elimelech dies, and he's, his wife, Naomi, is widowed. And then she has two sons who are grown, Malon and uh, Killian, and they married Moabite girls, Orpah and Ruth. The husband and the two sons die, and uh, she tells the girls, go back home. She's going to return in her bitter state to her hometown of Bethlehem. And Orpah decides to go ahead and go, and Naomi blessed her and said, go ahead, return to your family and Ruth says, I'll never leave you. I'm going with you. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember the scripture, but it seems to me that Moabites were deeply frowned upon by the people of God. But she finds her way with uh, Naomi back to Bethlehem. And Naomi sets her out on these errands of gathering grain. One of the things they did for welfare in Israel was they left the edges of the field ungleaned, and so people could come by if they were in need and work for themselves and gather. Okay, That was the system. And so she sent her out. Well, Boaz started to take notice of her, and he started to give her more of that grain. And finally, uh, Naomi uh, asked her to do something that we wouldn't see as so risque, but it was very risque in that day. He says, uh, Boaz, she says, Boaz is laying down in the threshing floor. You need to go and lay by his feet, uncover his feet, and cover yourself with it. And there's been all kinds of speculation about what this means. But what we can know, and I think a very conservative, safe approach, is that this was risque. This is, this is something like a marriage proposal from Ruth to Boaz. Now, if, you're, if that bothers you, bothers your sensitivities, I just want to say that that connection doesn't happen. We have no David. And so she obeys the voice of Naomi and goes to that place and lays down and uncovers Boaz's feet. And he could have interpreted this as a sexual advance. He could have interpreted this as it's prostitute-like behavior. And uh, being a man of faith, the way he did interpret it is there's a woman in need, and he sees it as a proposal to marry her. And he responds to it in a kind way. And he goes about it in the right kind of way. And he ends up marrying her. And the interesting thing about that proposal is how many barriers that that would have crossed. It would have been uh, strange. A woman proposing to a man. A younger person proposing to an older person. A field worker proposing to the field owner. An alien proposing to a native Israelite. Look at all the boundaries that were crossed. And all she did was obey Naomi's words. And she crossed a lot of social convention. And God met her in it and blessed her. And the close of the book tells us about Ruth, that she's the grandmother of David, right? Her son, Obed, her grandson, this is actually the great-grandmother of David. 
And so we have scandalous women in the genealogy of David, and there will be two more by the time the son of David comes. Who are they? Bathsheba? Bathsheba and Mary. You don't think Mary's scandalous, but that's because we know the backstory, but everybody else thought so. They even accused her of having an illegitimate son. All of her life, she had to live down that. So if you could save that for the end, Sierra, thank you. So God is good even when people are bad. And in his goodness, he can, uh, he can use anyone he chooses to accomplish his good purpose. You'll need to know um, that I'm not suggesting here that bad behavior doesn't matter. Like if, you know, David or Judah, if they, they had bad behavior or any of these ladies that we mentioned had bad behavior, it does matter. And sometimes behavior does disqualify people from how God might use them. But there are others will, uh, with checkered past who they sincerely are seeking God, and sometimes they feel that they can't be effective for God because they've spoiled their lives. And I want to encourage you that, that God can redeem that which has fallen away if we turn to him in the right way. And all of this leads to David, and uh, he proved himself to be vulnerable to sin too. But think about Levi for a moment. Levi was disqualified by his father in one sense, wasn't he? Like the, the, the lineage blessing passed over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. But something happened later on that put Levi in a place where his descendants would be the priests. And the Levites, of course, temple workers. What was it? How about Moses came down the mountain and the people were in revelry, right? They were reveling. What's that? Yeah, and Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? The Levites strapped on their sword, and they brought judgment. And I think they redeemed themselves in some sense and showed themselves loyal to God's purposes. We can count on God's goodness even though there may be a checkered pass. Like for David, uh, the the lineage of Judah is not... Um, doesn't have the nicest story, family stories to tell, <laughs> right? Uh, and then I want to I bring us finally here to royalty, royalty. Genesis 49, verse 8 through 12. Uh, it says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Uh, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine. Interesting, isn't it? Like, you want to say, wait a minute, we need to wait till the Gospels to be able to talk about that. This all the way back in Genesis. What do you think it means? He will wash his, his robes in, in, the, uh, in the blood of grapes. Do you see there what I see? That sure looks like shed blood to me, doesn't it? And his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. One of the difficulties that we may have, because what I think this is talking about here is a promise of royalty. And this is coming at the end of Jacob's life. He's blessing uh, his sons, and of course he brings Joseph's sons in and adopts them as his own sons. So we have this weird number if you're counting the tribes. You're going to come up with 13, but just remember that Ephraim and Manasseh are half-tribes. So together they count as the tribe of Joseph. Okay, And what happens in time is that Ephraim kind of takes the place of Joseph, and it becomes the larger of the tribes. And, and Judah kind of takes the place of the, the southern uh, kingdom, and uh, it's, it's one of the larger of the tribes. And so you start to get this thing that happens later in the Bible. You have to watch context as you use your words because the words shift meaning throughout Scripture if you're not careful. So, like, at one point, Ephraim means a person. At another point, it means a half-tribe. And then another point, it means the northern kingdom. Did you know that? Judah means a person. Judah means uh, the tribe of Judah. And Judah later becomes 
the southern kingdom, which is Judah, Benjamin, parts of Simeon, and Levi. And so you have to keep an eye on how the Bible is using that. As you get into some areas of Scripture, it does that. But, but Judah kind of prevails. And today we call Jewish people Jewish people because they're from the tribe of Judah. Are you with me? Like, that's what that, that's what that comes from. But there's this promise, and, and Jacob is promising or blessing his sons, and he has different things to say to different ones. And when it comes to Judah, the thing that sticks out is that the scepter will always remain with Judah. Scepter. What's a scepter? It's a, it's a ruling staff, isn't it? Like, it's the staff that symbolizes authority for a king. And so it's interesting that that should be brought up because at that point, Israel doesn't have a king, right? The, the only king that they know of right then is Pharaoh. But that's not what it's talking about. And what do you think by the fact that it, the scepter will always remain with Judah? What significance does that have? That's massive. Like always, not, not always as long as there is an Israel proper. Always. How can that be fulfilled? There's only one way. It's through the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will rule forever and ever. Okay, so we have uh, this promise here of a king. And he says it will, his staff will remain between his feet until the one to whom it belongs shall come and take it, and the obedience of nations shall be his. So do you see that, that this is a, a prophecy, although I don't know how deeply they would have understood it, but maybe just in the vaguest sense is enough to cling to it. They're holding on to this idea of someone who is going to rule nations. Folks, that's happening, in, at least in seed form right now. People from every tongue and tribe and nation are following the son of David, right? He's, he's ruling nations, and one day what we see through the eyes of faith will be manifest to all, that he will be the ruler that everyone will see. Amen, and it'll be a good day. So how do we reconcile this? Because one of the difficulties that we have to work through after coming out of Genesis chapter, that's in 49, verses 8 through 12. One of the things that we have to deal with is that it seems in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that God doesn't want Israel to have a king. It seems that way. Okay, How, how do we respond to that? Do you remember the story? Samuel has, is the last of the judges. He's leading them. Samuel is not, he's a great prophet. The Bible says God didn't let one of his words fall to the ground. That, that's a good prophet, but he's not a great father, it would appear, because his sons are getting away with murder, not literally, but they're doing some things they shouldn't be doing. And the people all recognize, and they're like, when you're gone, we don't want your sons ruling over us. Okay, that, That's probably good that they didn't want that. But the next thing that they do, and it appears that like <laughs> they're kind of telling Samuel, we're ready for you to pass on. You know, like the the um, prodigal son when he says to his father, "Give me my inheritance." It's kind of a slippery way of saying, "Dad, I'm ready for you to be dead so I can get the money you're going to give me." Okay, this is a similar thing: is that they want Samuel out of the leadership picture because what we find out is that he stays alive for several more years, long enough to anoint Saul and David. Okay, so he's alive for quite a while, at least. In, in my understanding, at least 13 more years, because that's about how David was on the run for about a decade. And it was about the end of David's reign, or at the end of Saul's reign, when Samuel dies, right? Somewhere right around there. So we've got a, a little ways, but they don't want that. They want a king. What's their reason for wanting a king? Do you remember 1 Samuel chapter 8? Be, be like the other nations, Right? We want to be like the other nations and have a king rule over us. Has anybody in the history of the world besides this people ever said, we want to have people rule over us? 
I know they, they have, but I'm trying to make a st- statement of how odd this is. We want somebody to rule over us. And Samuel's like, okay, but you realize what this means, right? It's not going to be what you like. Like, they're going to raise taxes. They're going to take your sons out of your home and send them to war. They're going to marry your daughters off. You're going to take your daughters away. You, you really want this? We want this. Samuel's feelings are hurt. He goes and he says to the Lord, Lord, how should I feel, how should I feel about this? My paraphrase. God says, it's not you that they're rejecting, but me. Okay, so does this mean God doesn't want Israel to ever have a king? I don't think we can say that. I think one interpretation could be God didn't want them to have a king at all. Uh, no doubt, though, it was being planned because already in Genesis 17, verse 6, when God spoke to Abraham, he said, I will make you very fruitful. Listen, I will make uh, nations of you and kings will come from you. God has already said something like that. Now, that doesn't mean, because Abraham had lots of sons, so maybe he's not talking about Israel. So let's just play on that a little bit. But what, do you, what do you do when you come to Deuteronomy 17? This happens before, before Samuel has been rejected. Deuteronomy 17, when they're, they're getting ready to come into the promised land, they're under the leadership of Moses. Moses has led them as far as he can take them, and he's giving them Deuteronomy, which is Deuteronomy is, means second law. He's given them the law the second time. So you'll remember in Exodus 20, he gives the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 5, he gives the Ten Commandments. But that's a retelling of the Ten Commandments as they get ready to go. We're talking about some 40 years later, right? They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And they need to hear the law of God again. And so in in, uh, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, he says, When you have a king, when you come into the land and you have a king, these are the things that you need to observe having a king. And one of the things, if, if you want one really interesting, that neither David nor Solomon observed, Deuteronomy 17, 17, kings are not to multiply wives. Have you seen that? They're not. And David seems to overlook that. And Solomon just like completely blows it off. And it's their trouble. Because a lot of the warring that took place within David's home was between children of different mothers. And there's other things related to that. But so should we assume, because God seems to already know, and he's already promised through Jacob to Judah that a scepter, a ruling scepter, will remain within the tribe of Judah. So can we really say that God doesn't want them to have a king at all? I don't think we can. The second thing that we might interpret this as is that God didn't want them to have a king for their reasons. You know, you see the difference? Sometimes it's not a no. Sometimes it's a no because you're not ready, right? Or a no because you want this for the wrong reason. Can you think of a verse related to that? James 4, you ask, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask amiss because you want to consume it upon your own desires. Okay. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because we have the wrong motives in it. And I think maybe here is an example of that, that uh, they had the wrong motives. In verse 5 of 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, appoint to us, appoint us a king to lead us like the other nations have. That's what we want, like the other nations have. Here's a, here's a third option, and maybe it's a combination of these last two. I think the, the, the one I just mentioned has something going for it. But another one is this, is that God didn't want them to have a king until his choice was ready. Are you with me? Because what I think is Saul is a placeholder. That I don't know that this is God's very best for Israel. You see, as soon as Saul is anointed, he seems humble at first, and God's spirit comes upon him, and he's transformed. But then he begins to think of himself more highly than he ought. His his dramatic figure, which he stood head and shoulders above everybody else, and uh, maybe his booming voice and his imposing appearance and his authority started to get to him. And he thought of himself more than he should have. 
And you start to see that it comes for Paul more about the exterior. And how was David chosen? Don't look upon the out, outward parts. God doesn't look on the outward. He looks upon the heart. So there's a whole different reason for choosing. Saul is the outward leader. He looks leader-esque. David, my understanding is that he doesn't look so impressive. That's why the other brothers were in the natural choice. And the father, uh, Jesse, doesn't even bring David in when Samuel comes to anoint a king. Well, I, that's what I think is that God didn't want them to have a king until his choice was ready. And so Saul maybe was a concession. Sometimes if we pray hard enough, God will give us what we ask for, even if he doesn't want it for us. And that's scary. If you insist upon your own way and you get it against God's will, that's not a win. I think this is one instance where God didn't God conceded to their desires and he gave them what they wanted, even though he knew that this wasn't going to be best for them, but they insisted upon it. And I think that can sometimes happen. And so let's be careful what we pray for, how we pray, how we insist, because God might answer our prayer even if he knows there's a better thing. So I understand the whole of Scripture to be saying that God's people would have a king, but a king on his terms, one that was subject to the law of God, um, the leader of the people of God, and ultimately the Son of God in Jesus. So many of the world's leaders are not humble before God. They don't serve God's express purposes. They're there to be served rather than to serve. And so all of this is leading up to David, who is a man after God's own heart, whatever that means. We'll unpack that later on. But we're seeing this legacy begin to develop. He has a legacy of of being in that position of the offspring, and it's coming and it's narrowing. And with each generation, if you think about this, that it's narrowing. When we were kids, I, I thought I was the only one that did this, but it, apparently other people did. But when the waters would really pour down, rain would pour down, we found these little bitty twigs, and we put them in our gutters, and we would race them. Anybody else do that? Troy? They do that in Philadelphia? They do it in Kansas, too. So I, I just think that's cool. And if you steer it just right, it can take different paths. And you see the promise of God doing this is that it narrows, that comes through Abraham, but it's not to Ishmael, it's to Isaac. So one is rejected, one is accepted. It's not to Esau, it's to Jacob, right? It's not to all the other sons, it's through Judah, all right? It's not through um, Zerah, it's through Perez, and it narrows on down. It's not the older sons of Jesse, it's David, okay? And there's a narrowing that takes place. The lineage of the Messiah is coming through. By the way, you know when uh, when Jacob is going in to steal uh, the blessing, this is what he's after. Did you know that? There's lots of interesting stuff around this, but he goes in to get this blessing. Do you think God's fooled by all of this? Already the prophecy has been given, the older will serve the younger. So he goes about tricking about it, but then the day comes that he needs to know he's got the blessing, and he wrestles with God until he hears it from God himself. I need you to bless me. I can't live on this fake, manipulated blessing. I need to have this. So what that is, is that's the bypassing of Esau and the choosing of Jacob to run down this lineage. We have a legacy here, and it's going to lead to David, and ultimately when we get to the end of our study, it's going to go through David, and David becomes the father of a legacy this point, he's the son of a legacy. And all of this is the backdrop for what's taking place in David's life. He's that, and, and this is the way a lot of these kings saw it, as they were placeholders themselves until the Messiah ultimately would come. And it's a beautiful thing to look at the life of David in that way. This legacy which led to David passes through him and on to the son of David, Jesus. And I hope that we'll see that God knows, he knows how to fulfill a promise and time's not a factor. I, I hope you'll see that because we're a, an instant culture, aren't we? Like we can't even be bothered to heat up things in our oven. We've got to use our air fryer, right? <laughs> Microwaves, those aren't healthy. Air fryer, that's the way to go. 
oven on a small scale. We've got to have it now. And, and that's fine. But sometimes we tend, to, we tend to view the things of God in that way. Like it's a now thing. And God's not in a hurry. Isaiah said, in Isaiah, I think it's uh, 5, maybe verse 20, woe to those, he's, he's giving us a series of woes, woe to those who say, let God hurry that we may see it. We want to see it. We want to see it now. God's not in a hurry. I mean, he anointed David to be king, and then he spends the better part of a decade in the wilderness leading 600 misfits. He's not a hurrying God. Time's not a factor with him. And all of this leads to an interesting quest of God looking for people to serve his purposes. I understand that God knows people's character, and he can use circumstances. And I want to present another side of this as we close here that David will become the man that God's going to use, but there's a response on David's part that he has to have. There's a, God is looking for people to fulfill his purposes. and I know he knows people's character, and he can use circumstances, bad or good, to put them where they need to serve his purpose, like Joseph wouldn't have chosen to get thrown in the pit by his brothers and sold to the Midianite traders and go to Egypt and spend years in jail and and finally go about it that way. If you could ask him, could I, would I trade it all if I hadn't known the end? He probably would have chosen to stay back in the promised land with his family. But God was sovereignly placing him. But he knew his character. And he knew that in every situation he found himself in, there was going to be an obedience to God. Okay, and God knew that. And so he knew he was a, that Joseph was a person that he could trust in that position. And so God can place in those ways, but we have to make room in all of this for the will of the person to choose to accept or reject God's call. How many times has God had big purposes, but he couldn't find someone to use? Probably the most well-known scripture on that is Ezekiel 22, 30 through 31. Do you know it? I looked for a man. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. This is, that's a heartbreaking thing that God can't find an ally among his people. And so there are moments when opportunities came, but God couldn't find a person who's willing to be used. And so we talk about God arranging and helping to build a person's character and to place them, but the other side of that is that there's our part in it to respond to him in the right way. And part of the reason David was a great man was he knew how to respond to God in the right way. And that's what I think he's asking of us. So it seems that some have disqualified themselves by not having the right kind of heart. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Saul, David's brothers even. Don't look upon them. I'm not looking upon their outward appearance. I'm looking for the heart. And though the Levites, they did find that redemption that we talked about. God can still use people who've failed in the past, but we need to have the right heart in approaching him today. So the question for us tonight is, will we be the kind of person who will be available for God to use? And the backdrop, of course, is not anything I want to do. The backdrop of this, of course, is God has big grand purposes of things he's doing in the world. One of the, I said this before, but let me say it again. The, one of the old uh, Pentecostal maxims or sayings that they used to have is, uh, if you want God's blessing, you need to get under the spout where the glory comes out. You ever heard that before? <laughs> get under the spout where the glory comes out. And the whole point of that is, if you want to be blessed by God, get in the stream of what he's doing, Right? He's working purposes in the world. Don't, don't stand over here outside the stream and go, God, bless my efforts, bless my efforts. Find where he's working and get involved there, and he will bless it. Okay, Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and he was a son of David, so there was that going for him, but there was a lot of baggage in the family history. Sarah, you had a comment, I think. Yeah, that's good. I think uh, one way to say that is that God God knows uh, 
God knows those places where our paths could cross, and he anticipates them because he has foresight. So if somebody like Rahab, he can foresee the moment at which her faith would come in contact with the people of God, and she would go make the right decision and do the right thing. And I think that's probably true of us, that there are key moments in our life where God is encountering us, and it's up to us, I think, to respond in the faith that God gives and uh, follow him in it. So appreciate that. Thanks for the word. All right. All right. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. We're, we're a minute over. Will you forgive me? Father, thank you for um, just the fact that we can count on the fact that we're part of the big story. This is not um, something we jump into and we try to just figure it out. But you're doing things in the world and you're, you're saving lives. And all of this is coming to a redemptive end in which there will be those that will be with you for eternity. And we want to be we want to be a part of the people of God, and we want to be under a part of the, the blessing of God. We want to be under your blessing and your care. We thank you that you sent Jesus, and we thank you that there are figures throughout Scripture like David who are uh, figures of hope, who they're, they've, they've failed and they've not been perfect, but, but their heart and the tenor of their life was after you. And I pray, God, that you help us to learn all that we can as we look at David's life, and to be blessed by it, and to be challenged by it, to be to be even warned by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact, or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message, and have a wonderful week.